Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. You're new with us. Welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, in our study of John's Gospel, we are in chapter 15, studying Jesus' farewell address to his disciples before his crucifixion. And uh, last week, we camped on verse 16, where we focused on Jesus' statement, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I can't just jump right in where we left off last week. The new folks are going to be completely lost. I'm not going to do that to you guys. So I'm going to recap just briefly to kind of bring everyone up to speed. So, so some of this will sound familiar. But when Jesus said to these men, now these were his disciples, these were his apostles. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Uh, upon saying this, I think that Jesus must have, uh, excuse me, upon saying this, I think that Jesus' disciples must have looked at each other somewhat puzzled by that statement. You see, um, in their minds, they had decided to follow Jesus, you know, in the past, at this point about three and a half years ago, and uh, they had decided to follow Jesus and become one of his disciples. So in their minds, they chose him. He didn't choose them. Now, of course, the immediate context was that these men didn't choose to be Jesus' apostles. That was something he had chosen for them. But the ultimate idea behind this statement that they, or actually any of us who are Jesus' disciples, didn't choose him, he chose us. Well, as we pointed out last week, that is a positional truth that took place a long time ago. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, I just want to read verse 4. Keep your finger here, though, we'll come back to it. Where Paul the Apostle said, Just as, as he chose us, and the idea is he chose us for eternal life, so that just as he, this was speaking of God, chose us to be in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So before God ever created the world, he knew who he knew he would we would exist. He knew our names and uh, he chose us before he ever created the world to be his children and have eternal life. Now, the question that we've been wrestling with is on what basis did God choose us for eternal life? And again, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, that God chose us, in my Bible says, elected us, same Greek word, but God chose or elected us to salvation according to his foreknowledge. God elected us to salvation of eternal life before, excuse me, according to his foreknowledge. The Greek word for foreknowledge is prog uh, prognosin, and it literally means knowledge known in advance, or the action of foretelling or prophesying future events. Now, those who are Calvinists say that this Greek word foreknowledge actually means foreordination. Foreordination. In other words, God only knows the future because he has foreordained the future. He knows the future because he has predetermined the future. 
including all those who would be saved. You see, in Calvinist theology, it isn't that God simply knew in advance the future. Uh, again, that would be the definition of foreknowledge. God didn't simply know in advance those who would get saved and those who wouldn't. In Calvinist theology, he actually predestined some to be saved, saved and the rest to be damned to hell forever. Let me just say once again that predestination is a biblical doctrine. Look at Ephesians 1, and this time we'll read verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. Let me just stop there. As we said last time, the word predestination comes from a Greek word that means to predetermine or to plan beforehand a person's destiny. Now, the strict definition of that word isn't hard to understand. It's pretty straightforward. The problem comes when we try to figure out upon what basis does God predetermine someone's destiny. Is it based solely upon his sovereign will? or on our free will. Extreme or hyper-Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God shows some to be, to be predestined to eternal life in heaven, and others he predestined to spend eternity in hell, a doctrine that is known as the doctrine of reprobation. We talked about that briefly last week. And as we said, all this was decided, where everyone was going to spend everyone's destiny, where everyone was going to spend eternity, whether in heaven or in hell, that was all decided for all of us uh, before any of us were ever born, without any free will on our part to choose where we wanted to spend eternity. In other words, we are nothing but puppets, and God is the puppet master. He makes us behave, yes, he pulls the strings and makes us behave in certain ways. We have no free will. We have to submit. Now, if you think I'm overstating that, one of the gurus of Calvinism, the one, one of the ones that they all look up to, uh, you know, a teacher of, among the Calvinists, made the statement several years ago. You can tell by the illustration, he, 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 the point he made. Even if you're typing on a typewriter and you mistakenly hit the wrong key, that wasn't a mistake. God made you do that. Why he would want to make you do that is beyond me. And when you talk about typing on a typewriter, big deal. But play that out a little bit in other contexts. So if a child gets raped by some sick pedophile, it wasn't that God just allowed it because we're in a fallen world and he's trying to work and bring people to Christ and gives mercy. No, God caused that to happen. He made that happen. That's a pretty sick and twisted concept of God. But they believe that God makes us behave in certain ways and causes some to believe and others not to believe in his son and we have no choice in the matter. Now, guys, I thoroughly reject the Calvinist doctrine or definition of predestination. I thoroughly reject that. Before I give you my interpretation of predestination, 
Let me talk for a moment about the Calvinist doctrine of reprobation. That God has chosen some for heaven, but then he has chosen others to go to hell without anything they can do about it. The doctrine of reprobation. First of all, let me just say that about this, about the doctrine of reprobation. Not all Calvinists hold to it. Moderate Calvinists teach that although God did elect and predestine some to salvation before the foundation of the world, simply on the basis of his divine sovereignty, they claim that it doesn't mean he predestined others to hell. But folks, this is trying to have it both ways. And let me tell you why. In Calvinist theology, nobody we're, we are so... Uh, dead trespasses and sins, so depraved in our fallen nature that no unbeliever has the capacity to exercise faith in Jesus to be saved. That faith has to be given to them by God. And he only gives it to the elect. He withholds the faith from everyone else that he hasn't elected to eternal life. So the idea is, if you believe as a Calvinist that God does predestine some to heaven but he doesn't predestine others to hell because that sounds a little too harsh, so they have to kind of back up a little bit and, and, and modify that position by saying, well, yeah, he chooses some for heaven, but he doesn't choose anyone for hell. Well, does he withhold the faith from them to believe to be saved? Well, sure. Well, then isn't that tantamount to condemning or reprobating them to hell? If they can't believe unless God gives them the faith to believe, and God's withholding the faith for them to believe, but he's not condemning them to hell? That doesn't even make sense, right? Let me just put it this way. Along those lines. If God commanded that for a person to get to heaven, they had to fly. But he only gave wings to a small group of people known as the elect to fly. I mean, isn't that basically reprobating the rest of hell? Now, I've heard Calvinists say when I present this to them, oh, but God isn't telling them not to fly. So their damnation is their fault. I mean, folks, that is so disingenuous, it's hard to even take it seriously. Again, I mean, if God withholds from people the faith to believe to be saved, but then tells them, well, you could believe if you want to. It's your fault you go to hell. That, that's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. And besides that, if God can and does force the elect to be saved, uh, why not just force everyone to be saved? I mean, how can God, who is all love, what the theologians call omnibenevolent, how can God, who is all love, only save a few when he could save all? I mean, how does that even harmonize with his nature as a God of love? Let's put it this way. Say you were uh, walking down a country road on a summer day, and as you're walking down this road, you look over, and about 100 yards from the road, there's a pond. And at a quick glance, you see five boys swimming. But then you take another glance and realize, whoa, they're not swimming. They're drowning. 
Now, let's just say for the sake of argument, you could run over and save all five of them. But you choose to only save one of them. Do you think people will think you're a hero or a heartless villain? Calvinism turns God into a heartless villain. A God who could save all of drowning humanity, right? All sinners who are drowning in sin and on their way to hell. He could save all of them if he wants to. Just because he runs over and saves a few, what, you think that makes God a hero? That makes him a heartless villain. If he could save everyone but only choose to save a few, the elect, we have a problem. This is a God that has a problem. And Calvinists will even admit the God of Calvinism, as one of them said, the God of Calvinism is a hard God to love. Let me say something. If you've got a God that's a hard God to love, he isn't the God of the Bible. I don't know what God you got. It's a God of your own invention. A God that you've twisted his nature and character into such a, a pretzel that now it's hard for you to love him. Well, that's your problem. The God of the Bible, the God that I love, is very easy to love. In fact, he is love. I've heard Calvinists respond to that argument. If God could save any, God should save all. And I've heard them respond to me, God is under no obligation to save anybody. Is it that solves the problem? I mean, that's true, but that's not the point. Of course God is under no obligation to do anything for any of us, including and especially to save fallen sinners from going to hell. No, no, nobody is arguing that. But listen, if he chooses by force to save sinners at all, then he must choose to save all sinners, or else he can't be an all-loving God. Now, at this point, many Calvinists would acknowledge that that's a good point. They have to acknowledge it, right? So then other Calvinists, I'm not sure how many hold to this, probably a lot. Uh, at this point, many Calvinists would respond, that's right. I've heard him say this. That's right. God is only all-loving to the elect. The rest of humanity he hates. Didn't he say, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated? Norm Geisler, tremendous man of God with the Lord, who wrote a great book on Calvinism, against Calvinism, okay, refuting Calvinism. I think uh, the title was Chosen But Free. It's not a technical book, and if you're interested in the subject, get a copy. Norm Geisel said, out of all the verses in the Bible mis Calvinists misuse and misinterpret, this one, which really... It comes out of Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, but was quoted by Paul in Romans 9, verse 13. He said, this verse is the most misused out of all the verses Calvinists misuse to prove their point. Why is that? Because nowhere in the book of Genesis, before Jacob and Esau, who were uh, brothers, twins, nowhere in the book, you could read the book of Genesis to your eyeballs fall out. And you will find nowhere in that book where God ever said before, Esau and Jacob were born, Esau I, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. You don't find it anywhere in Genesis after they were born and lived their lives. God never said that. 
So, so what's going on? Well, Malachi says it 1,500 years after Esau and Jacob had lived and died. By that time, we're not talking about Jacob the man or Esau the man. We're talking about the nation of Jacob, Israel, and the nation of Esau, the Edomites. And how that, what Malachi's point is, and Paul's point, when he quotes Malachi in Romans 9, go online, you can listen to that whole teaching, is that the nation of Israel was predestined or predetermined by God to be a light to the world. The nation of Esau was not because they were not believers, for the most part. Uh, Esau was a man of the field. The field is a type of the world. Esau was a worldly guy. Jacob, although he had his problems, was a man of faith. And God took Jacob's descendants, who became the children of Israel, and he chose Israel to be a special blessing to the world. That doesn't mean he, he only chose the Jews to be the only saved people in the world. I mean, not every Jew, because God elected the nation to a special place of, um, of effectiveness and blessing to reach the other part of the world for Christ. Uh, that doesn't mean that every Jew is automatically saved because God chose the nation to be used in a special way any more that, than he precluded uh, the nation of Esau, the Edomites, from being saved because they weren't as a nation chosen to be a blessing to the world that God would use to bring the light of the world, the light of the gospel to the rest of the world. That doesn't mean that no Edomites ever got saved. There's several in the Bible mentioned by name that got saved, okay? Besides this, Jesus said, let me just pull it out here. It's, the Jews had a different way of defining uh, love and hate. You've got to look at the context. I mean, certainly they understood love and they understood hate. But when you're talking about how they applied it in certain contexts, you have to understand, well, Jesus said it, being a Jew himself. In Luke 14, 26, he said, If anyone comes to me, and does not listen, hate his mother and his father and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters and even his own life, they're not worthy of me. Now, is the Lord Jesus Christ actually telling us to hate our families? Of course not. What are the Ten Commandments? Honor your mothers and fathers, right? In the Jewish mind, their love for God was to be so supreme, so dominant, so overshadowing of every other love relationship, including your own family, that everyone else in your life, your relationship with them seemed like hate compared with your love for God. You go online, you can listen to the whole teaching because we developed this. God didn't hate Esau. He loved Esau. But Esau was not chosen by God to be a special instrument to be used to bring the light of God's truth to the world. That was through the nation of Jacob. Israel. And just because God said he loved Jacob and hated Esau, that is the most misused, misquoted, misinterpreted verse in the Bible that the Calvinists used to prove their point. It's absolutely untrue. Because God never said before Esau and Jacob were born, he loved Jacob and hated Esau. Never said it while they were alive. Malachi says it 1,500 years later, after the nations of Esau and Jacob were around and so on. Look, let me just say this. Well, let me, let me just throw this out. 
Because I said to you, I, I was going to define, give you my definition of predestination. So you're thinking, okay, well then, what is your explanation? What is your definition of predestination? How do you explain it? Well, again, just to re recap, the word predestination comes from a Greek word that means to pre predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. The strict definition, again, isn't hard to understand. The problem comes, we try to figure out upon what basis does God predetermine someone's destiny, whether they go to heaven or hell. Once again, Peter said that we were elected and predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge is a Greek word that means knowledge known in advance. So how do I explain predestination? Let me read to you my explanation. And I wanted to write it down, so I worded it exactly so I didn't confuse. I figured, you know, I'm going to present this. I want to make sure I don't misspeak. So I took a, 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 a lot of time rewording and, 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 and whittling this thing down so that the final definition, what I agree with, what I believe in, I can relate to you clearly. So how do I explain predestination? Here it is. That God in eternity past looked down into the future through his foreknowledge and knew everyone who, through his grace, always through God's grace, he knew everyone who would respond in faith to his offer of salvation when the gospel was presented to them, certainly maybe not on the first attempt, on the first time a person heard the gospel, but eventually. God knew eventually those who would receive Christ. And therefore, based on that foreknowledge, he chose them, he chose us, he elected us to be his children and predetermined our destiny, the definition of predestination, he predetermined our destiny that we would spend eternity with him in heaven. Now, listen carefully. Predestination only applies to heaven. It only applies to heaven and those who receive Jesus as their Savior. Nowhere in the scriptures are we ever taught that God predestines anyone to hell. If they wind up going to hell, it's because they have they will be sent to hell because of their refusal to believe in and receive Jesus as their Savior. Now, our Calvinist brothers and sisters would immediately jump all over my interpretation of predestination by saying something to the effect, if God chose us based on us choosing Jesus, if he looked down into the future and saw that I would receive Jesus when the gospel was presented to me, well, then God would be the responder of even responding to what we chose to do and not the initiator of salvation. This, they say, would violate what Jesus himself clearly said on the subject. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And folks, I totally agree with that. God is the initiator of salvation. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out looking for lost sheep. He draws sinners to himself. We simply respond to his call and come to him for salvation. The difference between Calvinists and non-Calvinists like me is that Calvinists claim that God only draws the elect to Christ. He only draws the elect to Christ. Whereas I believe, as Jesus said in John 12, 32, 
If I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw all people, all men and women, to myself. He could have said the elect, if that was true, right? He could have said, I'll draw the elect to myself. That would have put all confusion to rest. But he said, if I am lifted up from the earth and the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Now, look, let me just say this. Just because God draws a person to Jesus, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we'll see this when we get to chapter 16, in part. Just because God draws a person to Jesus doesn't mean, listen, they have to be saved. It doesn't mean they have to be saved. They can resist the grace of God. I reject the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace, which means if God has chosen you, He's going to irresistibly draw you to salvation, and that's all there is to it. No free will, no choice. If God's chosen you in eternity past, He will irresistibly draw you. Irresistible. Grace can't be resisted. It's irresistible. Now, guys, I believe the Bible teaches that God is calling and drawing all men and women to be saved, but that His grace to be saved isn't forced on anyone and can be resisted and even rejected. Turn to Matthew 23. I can give you many verses along these lines. I'll just give you two. And I think they're important verses to refute this idea that God's grace is irresistible. And if God decides to do something in our lives, it's going to happen. We have no choice in the matter. It doesn't matter what, what, what God wants. We can resist. No, they say that's not possible. Okay, well, let's see what the Bible says. In Matthew 23, Jesus Christ has just rebuked the scribes and Pharisees eight times. It's a lot of fun to read. He really, he really takes them to task for their hypocrisy. And then he concludes that section in verse 37 by saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, stones those who are sent to her. How often, what? I wanted. Here's what I wanted, God said. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Here we see God wanting to do something, but in this case, the Jewish people, for the most part, were not willing. They rejected the will of God. They, they resisted the grace of God. Acts 7.51. Of course, it's the, uh, Stephen given his defense again uh, to the uh, Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. And after he recounts their history briefly, he then nails them. He said in Acts 7.51, he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. So as I said, the first service, apparently he didn't read How to Win Friends and Influence People. That important book that a lot of folks have read. No, no, Stephen just, he nails them. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, listen. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Guys, I believe that God is calling all people to be saved. But God knew in eternity past those who would receive Jesus as Savior and those who wouldn't. And based on that foreknowledge, 
He chose those who would receive Jesus to be his children and predestined them, again, predetermined their destiny to spend eternity with him in heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 20, verse 16, and in chapter 22, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. I mean, think about that for a second, okay? Many are called. Yeah, God's calling the whole world to be saved. But few are chosen. Why are only a few chosen? Because only a few out of all of humanity that's ever lived would choose to come to God, receive his son, and be saved. It's God's will that all people be saved, right? I mean, didn't the Lord say that? That, you know, didn't uh, Paul say it? That, uh, you know, the Lord desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? God desires that. doesn't mean... He's going to force that. He could have made robots that would have done anything he wanted. He didn't want robots. He wanted people who would love him of their own free will and choose to follow and obey him of their own free will and so on. If God would have forced us to be his people, we would have been robots. And God doesn't want robots. So many are called. The call has gone out to all the world. Come and be saved. Few are chosen. Why? Because in eternity past God knows knew who they would be. Those who would open their hearts to Christ and receive Him as their Savior. And God, based on His foreknowledge, chose them to be His children, predestined or, or, or planned in advance their, their, their final destination. They would live with Him forever in heaven. Turn to John 3.18. John 3, we'll start with verse 18. Listen to how Jesus words this, okay? And, and tell me if you don't hear free will all over this passage. John 3, verse, starting with verse 18, Jesus said, He who believes in him, speaking of himself, he who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe in me is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Condemnation means you're on your way to hell. That light, excuse me, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, you have to back up a couple verses to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? God loves the world that whoever would come to him and receive Jesus would not perish in hell, but would have everlasting life, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then verse 18, he who believes is not condemned, and so on. But listen. If you're condemned, it's because you apparently want to be condemned. You, you love the darkness rather than light. That's not God's fault. He's not condemning you to hell. He's saying, look, come to the light. Come to my son. I'll save you from condemnation, from going to hell. And yet, people have a free will. If they didn't, he wouldn't have given this invitation. He would have just dragged them into heaven, dragged them into salvation. One author had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, You see, the singular issue concerning predestination is neither intellectual nor theological. It's moral. 
Through his foreknowledge, God sees the person who wants to continue to walk in darkness and doesn't choose them for eternal life in heaven. So too, before the foundation of the world, he saw those who wanted to walk in the light, and he chose them to be his sons and daughters and live with him in his kingdom forever, end quote. Well, once again, let's be crystal clear on this point. Just because God chooses some for heaven, the Bible never teaches he chooses others for hell. In fact, the Bible says hell wasn't even created for man. Remember Jesus said this in Matthew 25, verse 41? He said that hell was not made for, the, for man, it was made for the devil and his angels. Well, so how, does, how do people get, wind up in hell? Well, the idea is that if a person wants to live their entire life in rebellion against God, well, then like the very first rebel in the universe, Lucifer, they're going to follow Lucifer all the way to where he's going to spend eternity, which is hell. But that's their choice. They're making that decision of their own free will. I mean, hell is where everyone goes who wants to live in sin. Doesn't want to repent, doesn't want to choose Jesus as their Savior. They go to hell of their own free will. And that's a tragedy, guys, because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We just quoted John 3.16, For God so loved who? The world. He could have said the elect. God only loves the elect, and if they and when they come to Jesus, you know, they, they'll never perish in hell and so on, right? Now Calvinists jump in and say, well, no, no, no. It's God so loved the world of the elect. Do you get that? I challenge you to study John's writings, especially his gospel and first epistle. Every time he uses the word world, it never has believers in view. It's always unbelievers. Okay? Always unbelievers. For God so loved the world of unbelievers that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's your choice. In Romans 10, verses 11 to 13, Paul says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. doesn't say only the elect, whoever. Now they can put the word elect in there if they want. But that, to me, is not reading your Bible honestly uh, at all. Just like when the Jehovah's Witnesses try to tell you that Jesus is, was the first created being of Jehovah God. And when you take them to the scriptures that say, well, by him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. They say, well, no, in their translation, the New World Trans, they put all other things were made by him. They insert the other. Because the Bible contradicts their theology. Just like Calvinism. I'm not equating Calvinism with Jehovah's Witnesses. Calvinists believe the gospel. All right? The Calvinists, many are going to heaven if they truly have received Christ. A lot of Calvinists have not. Uh, some Catholics have received Christ. Many others have not. It all depends what you've done with Christ, right? But Calvinists have the true gospel. They just limit who can be saved. I mean, I, I think the whole world can be saved. They won't get saved. Not everyone's going to get saved. I believe it's possible for the whole world to be saved. They say, no, no, just a little tiny group. All right. At this point, guys, 
I want to take a little detour. It won't be a long detour. Relax. <laughs> I want to take a little detour and say some things that at first glance are going to seem like they're totally disconnected from our subject this morning. Bear with me. They're not. There are many in our society that don't believe in God at all. Okay. There, but there are even a good number that believe in God but don't believe he created the universe, and in particular, and more to the point, that he created everyone living on planet Earth. And so in that regard, they don't believe in creationism, they believe in naturalism. Naturalism is a worldview that says in the beginning, nothing produced everything all by itself. Now chew on that for a second. Because naturalists are the intellectuals of our world. I'm telling you, all the universities, all the, the, the seats of power, most everybody in leadership is a naturalist. And they believe you, Bible-believing Christians who believe in creationism, are nothing but a bunch of dummies. You're unenlightened, uneducated, unsophisticated, intellectual dummies. Because you believe... In the beginning, God created everything. Now, what sounds dumber? <laughs> to believe in the beginning, God created everything? Or in the beginning, everything came from nothing all by itself? I'll let you wrestle with that, okay? But naturalism is an atheistic worldview because it believes that there is no God and that everything in the universe came about through natural processes without any supernatural intervention or divine fiat. Of course, this is contrary to what the Bible teaches. I just quoted Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the first verse of the Bible, we have the basis for a theistic worldview that everything in the natural realm was created by a supernatural deity. Of course, these two worldviews, the naturalism and theism, have profoundly impacted our society, in fact, the whole world. The Bible says that God made man, this is Psalm 8, verse 5, God made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. But modern man has rejected the creator and has embraced evolution, which teaches that man evolved a little higher than the apes. Now, think about how that's going to impact your view of life and, 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 and you know, how you live, right? I mean, God says, I've made you a little lower than the angels. If you accept my son, someday you will reign over the angels. But right now on earth, I've made you a little lower than the angels. But I've still crowned you with glory and honor because you're the smartest of all my beings on earth. I've given you dominion, right? Oh, made a little lower than the angels. Great, right? Evolution says, no, no, you evolved a little higher than the apes. Now look, think about this. People are shocked that our young people are out of control and they're killing in the streets and everything else. But from kindergarten through high school, for the most part, yeah, college if they go that far, They've been taught an, a, a, a naturalistic worldview, that they came from animals. 
And if you teach kids this from the time they're five years old to the time they're 18, that they're nothing more than animals, don't be surprised when they act like animals, right? Of course, evolution is amoral. So by rejecting the God of the Bible, who is a moral God, think of the Ten Commandments and so on, right? By rejecting the God of the Bible, who is a moral God, and replacing him with the God of naturalism, well, this allows man to live any way he wants without fear of, con of, of uh, condemnation. Or so he thinks. I mean, you can do away with God now. You'll stand before him someday. Someday every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. I mean, just because you kill him now doesn't mean you're not going to stand before him someday and have to give an account. So you can bury your head in the sand, pretend God doesn't exist, I can live any way I want. Go for it. You're going to have to answer to that God someday, though. Best to bow the knee to Christ right now than to, when you stand before him and it's too late, right? But guys, these two different worldviews, theism and naturalism, inevitably lead to two entirely different ways of looking at and living one's life. Many people who have embraced the naturalistic worldview don't realize the implications and ramifications this has or has had on our society. Look, if there is no God, if man is just a cosmic accident, the result of countless genetic mutations in the evolutionary process, then there is no purpose or ultimate value to life and certainly no afterlife. This leads to a philosophy of life that is both nihilistic and hedonistic. The motto of which being, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. That's it. But fortunately, that isn't true. Man is not a cosmic accident. There is a God who created man in his image and after his likeness. And he made us on purpose for a purpose. In fact, the Bible says that not only are we not an accident, we are God's masterpiece. Let me quote to you or paraphrase for you what, God, uh, what Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 10. He said, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us for a purpose so we can do all the good works he planned for our lives even before we were born. In this regard, the Lord is saying that even as he chose us for salvation, he also appointed us for special service. Let me end with this, okay? Because... All the good works God has purpose for our lives started with God choosing us because of our acceptance of Christ. But the Bible is saying that not only did he choose us for salvation, he also appointed us for special service. Turn back to John 15 real quick. Because this is what Jesus goes on to say. You did not, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that God created us on purpose 
for a purpose. That purpose was to do good works for his glory, right? We are his masterpiece. And he uh, planned out long ago the works we would do for him in this life and so on. But Jesus is saying that he made us on purpose for a purpose and he has been preparing us for that work even before we were born. Didn't Paul the Apostle say this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, when he was recounting his own testimony and how that God had called him. God had formed and called him even from his mother's womb for the ministry he was now doing for God's glory. Look, guys, God has been preparing you for his purposes in eternity past. But more, even more recently, he's been preparing you from the womb, from your mother's womb. You are no accident. I mean, listen, who you would be, your race, your gender, um, where you would be born, okay? Paul was born in uh, Tarsus in Cilicia, a Gentile area, which allowed him to grow up among Gentiles to understand Gentile culture. If he was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles someday, that was going to be important information for him to have, right? So, you know, where you were born, the time in history you were born into, uh, the family and economic status you were born into, even the talents and abilities you were born with, Guys, all of these things were God's way of preparing you for the purpose he had for your life. And then after you were born, he continued that work of preparation. Through all the experiences of your life, both good and bad, preparing you for the purpose he had for your life, shaping, molding you into the person you are today. You are, as some have said, a divine snowflake. Now that, I'm sorry. Um, that, that, that has been applied in other ways. Okay? I'm not saying you're a, a delicate snowflake. I'm just saying you're unique. Every snowflake is unique. That's how I meant it. Okay. You are, not only are you not an accident, you ever see, have you ever seen snowflakes fall? I mean, when I was a kid, my dad had a black uh, Ford Fairlane, I believe. And I was outside one day, and it started to snow, those real puffy flakes, right? And as each snowflake fell on the hood of his black car, I saw a pattern. You can go online and check snowflakes out. People have photographed them, right? Each of them is unique. Each of them is a masterpiece. In that regard, you and I are like snowflakes. We are unique. Nobody can do the work God's called us to do quite like we can do it. Now, if we don't want to do it, he'll raise up other people. But we are unique, right? Guys, God has got your future all mapped out and designed. I mean, he knows exactly the work he wants you to accomplish for his glory and his kingdom. The question is, will you submit to him and fulfill the plans and purposes he has ordained for your life? That's the question. God desires all people to be saved. Will all people to be, be saved? No. Only those who choose to accept God's invitation, right? to abide by his will. God has a master plan for each person in this room, for every person alive. Do they have to fulfill that master plan? No. They can live a selfish, uh, self-focused life. They can certainly do that. They don't have to live for God. They don't have to, you know, um, um, live their life for God's glory. Jesus, if you, if you live your life for yourself now, if you gain your life right now, you'll lose it forever. 
if you give up your life right now for my sake, you'll, you'll gain it for eternity. You'll live with me, right? But you don't have to do that. No, God doesn't force salvation on, onto anybody or his plan for service. But Jesus goes on to say, and I'll end with this. Jesus goes on to say that once the relationship with God is established, once you've received Christ as your Savior, that relationship has its privileges. One of the privileges is answered prayer. Look again at verse 16. For you did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now we're going to talk about this concept more down the road, primarily in chapter 16. Let me just say this. Word of faith people pull this out and say, oh, here it is. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he's going to give you. You want a Cadillac? Ask for a, don't ask for a, a Ford Nova. Do they even make those anymore? Don't ask for a Volkswagen. You're cheating yourself. Ask God for a Maserati. I don't know. Ask God for a mansion. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he's going to give it to you. Jesus was not talking about carte blanche prayer where we're in control and anything we want, God is a genie who will give us what we want. He's, the context is the work of the kingdom. I'm going back to my father soon. Chapter 14, where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet, I'll come back and get you. But in the meantime, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and you're going to take up and continue the work of the kingdom that I began. And whatever you have need of for the work of the kingdom, you ask the Father in my name and he'll get it to you. You'll, you'll receive it. Not all this other selfish, carnal baloney. Now understand this, and I'm, this is to set up next week's study. Understand this. Just because the Father chose you, and Jesus saved you, and the Holy Spirit wants to use you, that doesn't mean that if you serve God, listen, the world is going to applaud you, right? Hold on, hold on to that thought. We will look at what that means next time. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word brings light. It's truth. And it turns on the light and exposes the darkness. We just praise you, Lord, for who you are. You are an all-loving God who desires all people to be saved. You don't want to see anybody go to hell. You cried out in your word, turn, please turn from your sins. Why would you die and go to hell? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. So Lord, we just pray that you give grace to people, especially our loved ones who don't know you, that they would receive you. They would receive Jesus and be saved, that we can spend eternity with you in your kingdom. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.